Good morning, brothers and sisters. What a blessing it is to be here together in this church with family, and the teaching that we get at this location is phenomenal. All praise to God. Today we're reading, uh, just checking John, Mark 13, correct? Starting in verse 9. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say. But say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. This is God's word, all praise to God. Good morning. Thank you for being here. Welcome back, Kyle from Korea. It's good to see you. I don't think we have a Korean translation there, but we will get you one if you need it. So here we are, Mark. As we're going through the book of Mark, 70-some weeks that we've been in the book of Mark, we are in the week of the Passion of Christ. Uh, We are mid to late week now. It seems to flatten out as the way we're going through this. You know, this is a, this is a week that goes by very quickly, but as we are going verse by verse, uh, pericope by pericope, it does take a little bit of time, but don't lose sight of the cross. The cross is out there in front of Jesus. It is very close by. That cross which shines the light into our lives. So we always want to keep that in mind. We always want to see that before us as we're going through this particular section and through our lives. Last week, John had preached through the previous section, which dealt with the initial destruction of the temple. John had spoken about how it was difficult for them to comprehend the fact that the temple would be destroyed. What would happen in 70 AD, that the size of some of these stones at the temple, some that you could still see the foundation stones that are there, some of them 60 feet long, 60 plus feet long, 9 feet by 3 feet. Just enormous. Quarried off-site, cut off-site, into the appropriate size, and then transported there to build this temple. To see them when they had walked out and they looked at the beautiful building and the stones and they looked at this, this temple that would have been gilded with gold at various ages, the areas, this temple that would have looked like a snow-capped mountain from the distance, the way it shone in the sun. It was incomprehensible to them that at some point in time it would be destroyed. John talked about how it would, we would go into 20 years after Jesus spoke these words, 20 years after the ascension, and the temple still stood, that they would look upon this teaching and maybe forget. That they wouldn't see that it would come to pass. They would have forgotten that Jesus said that this temple itself, that this, these stones would be torn one apart from the other. And even at 20 years, it would be another 20 before it would happen. It was incomprehensible to them. It's interesting when we read these stories that we have to see it from two different viewpoints. One is that we are reading about the people who these teachings 
What Jesus is saying is happening to them immediately. They have no future in front of them that they have seen yet. And the people that are hearing this, the church in Rome, knows the story, knows about Jesus going to the cross, knows about Jesus ascending into heaven. We have the people in the story that Jesus is talking to, the disciples, who this is all new to them. And we have the church in Rome who has received this letter from Mark, this gospel from Mark, who knows the entirety of it, who is putting their trust in Jesus. Jesus told them in verse 8, or I'll start in verse 7, when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be frightened. Those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. Verse 8, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. There, these, are thing, these things are merely the beginnings of birth pangs. It is so interesting to think about what was in the disciples' minds when they heard these words. It was probably incomprehensible that nations would rise against nations as they were part of the Roman nation, the largest nation of the world, the one that controlled everything that was around them, that there was no place in their minds that was outside of Roman control. That to think that there might be a nation that would war or war successfully against Rome was out of the realm of possibility. That some of the things that Jesus is speaking about prophetically, looking into the future, were just hard for them to comprehend. But one thing they couldn't miss is the idea of birth pangs. For any that have had children, or will have children, or have been mothers or fathers who have been there, you can see that the birth pangs start simply, but they build up until that moment when the child is born. This idea that these things are merely the beginning, the the, the start of what will come to pass must always be kept in mind. We ourselves, when we read this, when we know about the ascended Jesus, about Jesus being at the right hand of the Father right now as we speak, in flesh, that we must always remember that we are in that period of time between the cross and between the crown. This is where we exist. Every minute, every second that ticks by, we are getting closer to the end of this world as we know it. Jesus is warning them about the things that will come to pass. And when we get into these verses, we always have to keep in mind too that Jesus is talking about both the immediate future and the faraway future. He is telling them about things that will happen soon and things that will happen much, much later. In fact, things that may happen that you will never see yourselves. That's why the title of this message is Trust in God's Providence. Trust in God's control. As R.C. Sproul said, there is not a single errant atom outside of his control in the entirety of the universe. Everything is under God's control. When we talk of God's providence, we are not talking about miracles that are in opposition to nature. Miracles like dead men being risen from the dead, risen, be brought back alive. We're not talking about miracles with God's providence where seas are calmed and winds are forced away. We're not talking about miracles where a few fish and a few loaves are made to feed thousands. When we're talking about God's providence, we're talking about those things that come into being, all those things that interplay that God has laid out since before the foundation of the earth that will bring these things to pass. 
the millions upon millions of things that interact, the millions upon millions of things that interacted through time that have brought you into the church today. There's things that we don't pay a whole lot of attention to. The daily interactings, the sun rising and the setting, all these things. But God is in control of it all. The scripture clearly tells us that. God is not surprised that you're here today. God is not surprised that you woke up this morning. I think we spoke last week, week before, the, uh, before in the Psalms, where it says, in Psalm number 3, David says, I lay down, I went to sleep, I woke up. God's providence right there. That is all that God sustains. I lay down, I went to sleep, I woke up. And David said God sustains him. God's providence what keeps us alive. God keeps us here. When Jesus is speaking these words, he's talking about how God is in control of all this. That these things, these birth pangs, do not be afraid. These have already been known that they were going to happen before the foundations of this earth were laid. It is all part of his plan. It is all part of what God intends to do and what God will do to bring about the redemption of all those he redeems. Verse 9. But you, but be on your guard. Watch out. Look out. Be on your guard. Don't fall asleep. Be like the watchman on the wall. Don't miss what is going to happen. Be on your guard, for they will deliver you to the courts. You will be flogged in the synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings for my sake. As a testimony to them. As a witness to them. You are my representatives. You are the messenger and the witness to these people. I am telling you, this is going to happen. This is not something that may or may not happen. This will happen. Be on guard. Don't run away. Catch that. He's not telling them to run and to hide. He's just saying, this is going to happen to you. You are the ones that this is going to happen to first. You, my disciples who are there, who have traveled with me, who I've taught over these past three years, you are the ones who will be taken away, who will be flogged and beaten for my sake, because of who I am. Because as the world has hated me, they will also hate you. Now, we, I'll probably intersperse some things in here before we get to the conclusion, but we can see that things like this are happening now. Things like this have always happened to believers. I'll do it right now. I'd ask that we would all keep in prayer. James Coates, who's in Canada right now, who has been arrested uh, as a pastor for preaching in this church, refused to turn people away who were coming there to worship, uh, was arrested because they were beyond the capacity of the church, he chose to preach Christ's name, chose to preach about the gospel, was arrested for that, uh, was arrested probably right around a month ago. His appeal was denied. He doesn't go to trial till the beginning of May, remanded in prison. And at the same time, the Canadian government has chosen to release people for child, child molestation and whatnot. Yet the, yet the, the preacher is in, in, in prison. So I'd ask, I'll take this just aside, that you, you keep James Coates and his family in prayer. Jesus says this is going to happen to these disciples. This is the immediate future for them. It has to be somewhat setting them back on their heels, perhaps. I mean, they've had a pretty good run. They really haven't run into any significant problems. They haven't been arrested. They haven't been beaten. They haven't been flogged. 
they might have had to get out of town a couple times fairly quickly, but I mean, it really hasn't been like that for them. They have been warned, Jesus has told them that the cross is coming. But you know, it's hard to comprehend until you actually see it. It's hard to believe when you, it's not part of your, your thinking. They've seen Jesus get out of some crowded situations before. He's warned them, but they probably just don't quite get the idea of what is going to happen at the end of this week. They certainly can't comprehend all of that. These birth pangs, these floggings, and these beatings that they are told will happen to them, for them to be that witness to, in that time, you know, martyr referred to the person that was the witness. It would later turn into being a martyr is the one who is killed for what they believe. Deuteronomy 25.3 would tell us that these floggings, there are 40 lashes for the evildoer. It goes something like 21 on the back, 19 on the front. They would be, their, their shirt, their tunic would be stripped down to the waist. And they would be face down to be beaten on the back and then face up to be beaten on their chest. Paul refers to that happening to themselves, to himself. He would say he was lashed 39 times. Why 39 instead of 40? Well, it was in case they lost count. They didn't want to accidentally administer more punishment than the law required. Look at Matthew chapter 24, verse 9. We see the synoptic, the parallel account of this. 24, verse 9 tells us this. says, then they will deliver you to tribulation. He's a little bit harder here when he says, and will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. I don't know, guys, but it's getting pretty serious for them. They're on the pathway where there's no turning back. There's one that will leave. What Jesus refers to as the son of perdition, which would be Judas. The one who will sell him out. But these other 11 there, this, this warning that comes to them is pretty significant. They will kill you. They will flog you. They will beat you. Not only will it happen in the synagogues, but you're going to go before governors and kings. Not only will you be before your own people, but you will be in front of the leaders of the pagan nations because of me. I'm telling you this because it was always meant to be. This was always part of my Father's plan. It is the truth of what is going to occur. He's exhorting them not to seek their own safety, but to be messengers of the truth about who He is. Jesus takes a turn. He Now we have just talked about the immediate future. Now in verse 10 He says these words, the Gospel must first be preached to all the nations. We need to think about this. And perhaps we should look at Matthew 24, 14 for a little bit more clarity of what he is saying. If we go to 24, 14, he says these words. He said, this gospel of the kingdom, God's kingdom, shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations and then the end will come. Jesus is referring to deep time, far time, away time, not necessarily their time. They might not see it yet, but it's written that we can see it. We can see that Jesus is referring to the future. 
probably beyond the floggings and the killings that will occur to the disciples, that this is all part of the birth pangs that will happen prior to the end. That this Gospel must first be preached, reaching back to the previous section of Scripture, where he talks about nations rising against nations and so forth, these birth pangs, reaching back there and pointing forward to a far future. Paul would say in, well, we'll look at it, Colossians chapter 1, verse 6. Think about how Paul says these. Think about, ponder these words of Paul, how it's said. We always want to be students as best as we possibly can of language when we read these. Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 6, He says, which, you, which has come to you, the gospel, catching the end of verse 5, the gospel which has come to you just as in all the world also is constantly bearing fruit and increasing even as it has been doing as you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God's truth. It says that the gospel has come to you just as in all the world. Now we have to think of how Paul's speaking here. How he's using all, all the world, indicating that the world of which perhaps he has knowledge of, he's heard of the gospel reaching into those far reaches of the Roman Empire. Paul, who has never heard of Australia or known about it. Paul just grabbing an image that the gospel has gone to far reaches. Look at verse 23, just a few verses 40 says, if indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast, not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, was made a minister. Paul was speaking of that idea of the known world that they know, that the gospel has been heard at the far reaches, but has no comprehension of the United States has no comprehension that people such as us will be here listening to the gospel being preached. So we want to be students of the word. We want to be of the language of how it's used. Just like when we say, I could so hungry I can eat a horse. Well, I can't literally eat a horse. You know, we sometimes speak in these big, broad terms to ex be expressive. And that's what Paul is doing there. But when Jesus is speaking about preaching in all the world, he means all the world. We see that in Revelation when he says that there will be believers from every tongue, nation, and tribe in heaven. Far beyond what the disciples could comprehend at that period of time. Perhaps even when they heard that, they might have glossed over it a little bit because they were focused on the floggings and the beatings and the killings that was going to happen to them. That's what I would be focused on hearing this. Not necessarily the news I want to hear. Not necessarily the news you want to hear when you think that Jesus might be that one that's ushering in the new kingdom that is in charge, that is sending the Romans away and Israel will be back to the top. There's so many emotions that would be being played with them right now as they hear these words. both the here and now of the previous verse and now the then and later of this verse. In 11 it says, when they arrest you and hand, they, hand you over, when they arrest you, not if they arrest you, not they might arrest you, not there's a good chance they're going to arrest you, but there's a chance they won't. He's, Jesus says, in God's providence, in His plan, when they arrest you, and when they hand you over, do not worry beforehand about what you are going to say. This thing is going to happen to you. You see, I will be going away. I won't be here for the entirety with you. Your life is not your own. Your life is mine. When they arrest you, 
when this happens to you, hear me, disciples. Hear what I'm saying. That I'm not giving... There is an option that this doesn't happen. There is not a no persecution option for you. There is not a no hatred option for you. There is not a, I'm just going to go back and be a fisherman and I'm going to forget all this crazy stuff I've been doing for the past three years with this Jesus fellow. Now that's linked in a couple ways. Think about this. What will happen is the shepherd will be struck and the sheep will scatter, correct? But then, that tomb is empty. And then, they see the risen Christ. And then, they know the truth. Like, no, like none of us can even know. Then, they see the ascended Jesus. Then, they preach on Pentecost. Then, they are the boldest men you've ever seen. Then, they willingly get arrested. Then, they willingly get flogged. Then, they willingly get beaten. Then, they willingly die because they can't deny the truth. They can't deny who Jesus is. They are the messenger and the witness of Him. He gives them these words of comfort which He will go into further in John. He says to them, when they arrest you, when this thing that is going to happen, that there's no option that it doesn't happen, when this thing happens, when you are brought before these people... Just remember, you are my witnesses. You are the foundation of the church. You are plan A that has always been decided that this is the way it's going to be. You are the ones, and when they bring you, don't worry yourself. Don't be anxious. Don't hold on to the flesh so tightly that you're willing to deny who I am. When they bring you before the courts, don't worry about what you're to say is my witness. But say whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but it is the Holy Spirit. Now, rather than give application for us about this particular passage, at the end, we're going to do a little bit right now. Just remember... The Spirit comes to them differently than it comes to us. Just remember, they are at a specific place in a specific part of the work of God for the Spirit to come to them. Remember, they don't have what we have here. They are at a very specific early time period where they are given the words to speak that are then given to us. So we shouldn't assume that we are going to receive New revelation from Jesus. We don't. The revelation is given to them, which is what we have here. We also, if we are persecuted, if we are arrested, if we are beaten, if we are flogged, if we are killed for Jesus' name, we should trust that the Spirit will give us the words to say. But we build on this what we know from the Scripture. They are different and new to this. So we have to be careful. No new revelation. There is no new, there is no new, new testament or New Testament 2 being written. This is what we got. That's why, as believers, this is our application. As believers now in this world that we live in now, where pastors are arrested and child molesters are let go, that we need to be in the scripture. We need to bury this in our hearts. We need to Trust in God's providence that what God's promises are will come to pass, even if we can't quite see it through the clouds. And what is the church in Rome hearing right now? Guys and gals that are living in Rome under Nero hearing. What are they hearing when they read these things? This story about the disciples hearing these words about what's going to happen to them. They're under persecution. We know that live Christians were lit afire for Nero's parties. 
tied to stakes and lit on fires to provide light for Nero. We know that some Christians were, were thrown into the Circus Maximus, the Colosseum, to be torn apart by wild animals. We know that sometimes, as I've mentioned here before, that, they, that Christians would be sewn into bags with wild dogs and then thrown into the river. The Tiber to be, that would be drowned, at the same time drowning and being torn apart by an animal. We know that these believers in Rome have, this letter has come from a distance, probably from Syria, this gospel. I, I mentioned to a friend the other day that this gospel is like a triage gospel. It is so short and clipped compared to the other ones. It has the essentials that they must know, that, they, that will build up their foundations to this persecuted church in Rome, that this letter is received in that church, that this letter is read to that church, and what they hear is the hope in God's providence when they hear this. That their neighbors or friends who were Christians might have been killed, Yet they hear these words that Mark has written down from Peter's teachings, and they find hope in them, and they say, yes, this is the truth. This is the Jesus who is true. This is the Jesus who is the sufficient payment for my sins. They read these words, and they hear them said, and they say, yeah, look, he told the, they told the disciples this was going to happen, and that's what did happen. We heard so-and-so. We heard Stephen was run through. We heard these words. Yes, this is true, and this is where my hope is at. It came to pass just as Jesus said. So the church in Rome hears, hears these words, and we could read them and say, oh man, I don't want that to happen to me. They read these words and they find the hope and the joy that is found in Jesus as Lord and Savior. Because you know what they read and they remembered? They remembered the sea. They remembered the calming of the sea. Excuse me. They remembered the disciples saying, Jesus, don't you even care that we are in the process of perishing right now? And Jesus gives up and rebukes the wind and the waves and it's calm. And they say, what manner of man is this? What type of man is this? Who is this person who controls the weather? They look at this and Rome hears this, that little church in Rome hears this and they find hope in these words. Mm, so yeah, maybe we shouldn't hold on to this life so much. Maybe we should because there's a lot of lies that are being said. How could people hate Jesus when he did this for them? Don't be anxious. Don't be anxious. Don't worry about what you're supposed to say. I have you. You are mine. From the moment we believe to the moment we die to that instantaneous moment that we're in His presence, we are never out of His presence. There's not a moment where we are not with Jesus. As we are taking those final breaths of our life, maybe we're on a ventilator. Maybe we're in a car crash. Maybe we're a long, arduous death due to cancer. But as we take those last breaths, there is never a moment that we are not with Jesus when you are found in Jesus. You are never alone at those moments. He is with you that entire time. That's why Paul says, I repeat this all the time, Paul says, the time of my departure is near. He's going on a trip. He's not dying. He's going to be with Jesus. And he's never out of Jesus' presence. And when that church in Rome hears that, yes, Man, I get it. Yeah, I'm glad we got, I'm thankful that we got this letter because it's really tough here in Rome because we're getting beaten up and it's only going to get worse. The thing is, they don't know how worse it's going to get for them. Their, their ancestors that go on to the end under Diocletian, which is in the late 200s, it's going to get far worse. They can't imagine how bad it's going to get. They can't imagine how bad it's going to get for some Protestant believers in the 1500s. But when they read that, when they receive this letter, I could, I, just, I could just almost see this letter coming into that church in Rome, that letter of Mark coming into the church at Rome, just quickly, somebody's got to read this to us. This came 
This, this came for us. This, this came for us. Read it, read it. You can see them. They didn't pause. They didn't read one chapter. Oh, we'll come back that, to that tomorrow. Let's come back again. You can see them just a whole bunch of people there sitting, sitting around, listening to this letter being read to them entirety. And just being amazed that these words came to them, that God's providence sent this word to them at the time that they needed it to be hopeful, to trust in Jesus, right? That they received this and they were just so thankful for that letter. Now here's our application today. Are we thankful for the scripture ourselves? Or do we let it gather dust? Look at verse 12. Don't worry about what you're going to say. I got you covered. And you Christians far in the future, the ones that these people couldn't even imagine would be here, they, could, they have no concept of us at this point in time. That you Christians in the forward, you don't worry about it either. You don't need to worry about what to say. You don't need to, you don't need to concern yourself. You... you you know who Jesus is. You, you have the Scriptures before you. You can trust in me that I have you. That even if the time of your departure is near, in Philippians 1.21, to live is Christ. That's where my life is at. So don't you worry either. Look at 12. Good stuff. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father, his child, and children will rise up against parents and have them put to, get, put to death. Again, now we have, and maybe we just kind of read over this, and yeah, we've seen this happen throughout history, but this is new for them. Because guess what? None of those disciples have kids. So this has got to be talking about something in the future. Something more that is going to happen. Something that's going to happen later down the road. Look at Micah chapter uh, 7 verse 6. I think it's Micah 7 6. Let's start at 1. Micah the prophet speaking, Woe is me, for I am like the fruit pickers, like the grape gatherers. gatherers. There is not a cluster of grapes to eat, or a first ripe fig which I crave. A nice little statement about grapes and figs, but what does it mean? Verse 2, The godly person has perished from the land, and there is no upright person among men. All of them lie in wait for bloodshed. Each of them hunts the other with a net. We're going to find that Jesus borrowed these words, took these words in Mark, right from Micah. Verse 3, concerning evil, both hands do it well. Think about that for a second. The prince asks also the judge for a bribe, and a great man speaks the desire of his soul, so they weave it together. Micah the prophet talking about what the world is like. What their world is like. And guess what? Ours is too. The best of them is like a briar. There's no figure, no grape there. The most upright like a thorn hedge. The day when you post your watchman, your punishment will come. Then their confusion will occur. Do not trust in a neighbor. Do not have confidence in a friend. From her who lies in your bosom, guard your lips. Six. For son treats father contemptuously. Daughter rises up against her mother. Daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are men of his own household. This belief in Jesus, guess what? My family, I'm blessed enough to have immediate family members who are followers of Jesus. So they are my family. But all those who are in this room who uh, who follow, who are believers in Jesus are also my family. And all those believers who follow Jesus back through time are part of my family. And all those believers in Jesus who I've never met that are in China, in Russia, in Europe, in Australia, who believe in Jesus right now, they are part of my family. James Coates, who we asked to pray for, he is part of my family because he is a Christ follower. My family is not by ethnic lines. My family is by Christ lines. My family is the branch in which I am engrafted in too. That is my family. Jesus' warning here, if you put your trust in those members 
of your friends and families that those are the ones who are your true family, well, I've got news for you. When Jesus divides, Jesus is my Savior for those who love Jesus, but to the world He is hated. For many reasons. Number one is He convicts the world of what they're like. My family, as I look out upon this beautiful congregation, is all of you who are found in Christ. I don't care where you live, where you grew up, what you do for a living. It's you who are found in Christ who are my family. You are my brothers and sisters. That's why we should be graceful to all of us who are followers in Christ. Sometimes, we talked about this in the leadership meeting today, that sometimes we're going to have disagreements. Because guess what? We're people. But we want to be grace-filled and realize the family that we're in. And this is the family of believers. And the people that lived on this street, lived and died on this street who were believers, those are our family too. We want to always keep that in mind. We want to keep in mind that Jesus, when He's saying here, brother will betray brother to death, and a father, his child, and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death that don't trust in your bloodlines. Trust in the only bloodline that is in Christ Himself. That's the only blood that matters. It's His blood that has washed me clean, washed me white as snow. That is what truly matters here. And guess what? The disciples are saying, well, I don't have any kids. So, why is He telling me about kids? I don't have any kids. He's just told us we're going to be flogged in front of the courts and stuff like this. What does this possibly mean? But I can tell you right now, the church in Rome knows exactly what this means. The church in Rome knows that there are, there, are, there are believers in that church in Rome whose friends and family have been turned in by other friends and family. Have been told, there's your Christian problem. We know one that's down the street. You better take care of him. And then when we run forward, as I mentioned, we run forward to the late 200s, 200 A.D., we run into the uh, we run into the emperor uh, Diocletian, who will then give rewards for people to turn in Christians. Family members will turn in other family members. Brothers will turn in brothers, so that they won't be persecuted. Better you than me. The church in Rome is hearing that, right? They're getting it. They're like, boy, Jesus told us this was going to happen. We shouldn't be surprised when it does happen. We shouldn't be surprised when people that we thought were friends turn on us. (laughs) You know, it happens all the time. You know, it's happening to Christ followers right now. All throughout the world. It's happening to our brothers and sisters. Now think about this. Do you ever think of the fact we have brothers and sisters in Christ in China. Millions of them. Millions of people that we will never meet here, but we will know intimately in heaven. They're under persecution right now. A little aside, a little application. I suggest, guys, that we, you dive into this heavily. As much as you possibly can. If you've never read the Bible, start with a verse. Because the time, I'm telling you, the time is here. The persecution is right on our doorstep. To, to profess Jesus as Lord and Savior is to be hated by the world. So prepare yourself with this, with the book. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and actions of the heart. Hebrews 4.12 So the Gospel is divisive. The Gospel separates people out. We talked about brothers here and sisters and everybody turning against one another. So here's here's the fascinating part. This is why it's fascinating to be part of the family and the body of believers. How different we all are, but how the same we all are. We are all the same in sinners. We might be different in our individual sins. But our Savior is a perfect Savior. 
He isn't a partial Savior. He is a full Savior. He doesn't partially save somebody. He fully saves somebody. When we look at John 3, remember he has that, Jesus having that conversation with Nicodemus. <laughs> as, they, as the person questioned Billy Graham, why are you always saying people must be born again? The woman says to Billy Graham, and she says, dear woman, he says, because it says you must be born again. I'm going to steal from somebody, I can't remember the name, but you will have people will say today, well, I was born this way. That doesn't change the fact Jesus says, you must be born again. You must be born anew. You must be a new creation. And guess who can do that? God can. John 3 tells us, we could look at somebody that we meet on the street and would say, they're not a believer. Maybe they aren't. But salvation comes to who salvation comes to. Jesus says in that same verses with with, uh, Nicodemus, He says the wind blows... Who knows where the wind blows from and where it goes to? And the same is with the Holy Spirit. So we come, I'm looking at my time. I did not put the timer, did not flip it over. The other pastor here was not good at doing that. So, well, we're just going to have to work with substandard, substandard behavior. Look at verse 13. You will be hated. Now, we have done the near future, the far future, the near future, the far future, and now we're a combined future. 13, you will be hated by all because of my name, but the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. Just a little thing. He says there, all will hate you because of my name. Now, this is again how we use language. right? I could eat all the eggs. Well, I can't eat all of them. I could eat like maybe six of the twelve. I can eat all the eggs is what I say. He says all, but you know, obviously the ones you won't be hated by were the ones that are in your family, those Christians, those Christ followers who you know, those are the ones who don't hate you. But you will be hated by all because of my name, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Hear me, it is not your ability to endure that saves you. It is not your works that saves you. Remember when I said that Jesus is not a partial Savior? That He is a full and complete Savior? When Jesus saves, He saves completely. When Jesus saves, you don't almost get salvation. You get full salvation. We should... Sometimes we talk in those <clears throat> Calvinistic terms, in the tulip, which was a response to uh, Arminianism, it will say the, the perseverance of the saints. I like how R.C. Sproul puts it. We do have some of these books back there, by the way, uh, which are good to read, quick reads. I encourage you to take a look at those. Uh, instead of perse- uh, perseverance of the saints, which gives you that idea that it's me doing the work to persevere my salvation. We should maybe look at better like this. Jesus is a complete Savior. It would be the preservation of the saints. Jesus preserves every one of you. You know Jesus right now, for all you who believe in, believe in Him, Jesus is at the right hand of the Father and He is interceding for us right now. The Scripture tells us that. And I believe it. You know why I believe it? Because the Scripture tells me that. In the Scriptures, God's infallible and errant word. Guess what? This, the world doesn't believe that. But Jesus tells us it's true. I'm going to prefer to believe Jesus as opposed to these people in the world. I'm going to prefer to I'm going to I'm going to prefer to believe the one who completely saves me rather than the people that tell me all sorts of lies on a daily basis. Look at Philippians chapter one verse six. And I really don't know what's happening in my voice right now, but we're going to deal with it. Hopefully, you guys can deal with it too. <clears throat> Philippians chapter one verse six says this, Paul speaking to the church of Philippi, he says this, For I am confident of this very thing, that He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Man, circle that one. Make photocopies of it. Put it in your wallet. Take a picture of it on your phone. Look at that. 
On those days when you feel down, on those days when you feel you're at the bottom of the trough, on those days when you don't feel like getting up out of bed, guess what? You haven't lost your salvation found in Jesus. It says that He will perfect it in Him. That that good work He started, He will not let pass away. This endurance is, does not rest or fall on our own strength. The Greek word in there gives this, this feeling to it. It means to bear under a load of miseries. Bear undering, under a large weight but not being crushed. To bear up under something. And guess who undergirds that bearing up? It's Jesus undergirds that. It's Jesus who preserves us. It's Jesus who lifts my head up. It's Jesus who leads me beside the still waters. It's Jesus who protects me even when I'm being killed. Because when I'm being killed, I'm departing to be with Jesus. And all, guess this, and all my other family members. And all those other believers in Christ. And you know what is going to happen when I do that? When I leave from here and be in there, they are going to testify how God was glorified in their lives and what the great work was that God did in saving sinners like me. There is no greater miracle than a sinner saved by God's grace. Everything in creation pales under that miracle itself of saving a sinner, a man that is dead, bringing him back to life in Jesus. Look at... uh... Look at Job chapter 8, verse 15. Uh, John, thanks for flipping that sand dial, or the sand hourglass back over again so I have more time. I appreciate that. Job chapter 8, verse 15. <clears throat> and I will uh, speed up here just a little bit. As I see, we do have communion to get to, and it's very important. Communion is awesome because we get to commune and be in unity with other believers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, Job chapter 8, verse 15. Look at, look at these words by Job. Now, we could say that Job was crushed. But I would also argue that Job endured. God allowed Job to endure. God uplifted Job. And it says here, 8, 8.15, he says, He trusts in his house, but it does not stand. He holds fast to it, but it does not endure. Not trusting into the things of the world. Trusting in the eternal God. Trusting in the work of Jesus. We'll go to a book we don't usually go to. Let's go to Jude. And then we'll go into the conclusion of this. Again, thank you for bearing with uh, whatever's going on with my voice. We're going to do Jude 21 through 24. Now, let's start in 20. But you, beloved, Jude, also half brother Jesus, uh, chapter 20, or excuse me, Jude, verse 20. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. Man, I'm going to tell you what I desire. I love being here with my friends and my family and doing the things that God allows me to do. I love the fact that He enables me to preach out of His Word for this period of time. But I desire to be free from sin. I desire to be not have to deal with it anymore. I desire to be in God's presence where He is the one that fully upholds me sinless in that environment, in the new heaven and the new earth. Look at that. Anxiously, anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. And have mercy on some who are doubting. In 23, save others, snatching them out of the fire. Remember, that's what we should be doing, right? We should be telling everybody about the love of Jesus Right? They should not one should get by us into hell without struggling to get there. 
We should be grabbing onto them and clawing them and dragging them back from the eternal pit, right? Snatching them out of the fire, and on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. 24. Now to him, Jesus, who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. There's another one you can take a picture of and put it on your phone to look at every day. Jesus, the same one who calmed the sea. So look at the time. <clears throat> Where do we go with the passages? Right? He, Jesus is immediately talking to the disciples. What's going to happen to them? He's also pointing forward to the future. Excuse me. He is also, the church in Rome is hearing this gospel and they are being uplifted and upheld to endurance, right? Under the great weight of persecution, knowing that it is Jesus that buoys them up, that lifts them up, that holds them up, that they put their trust in, that even if they are to die, they will depart and be with Him, which is far better than being here. But we are here for a certain period of time that God has allotted for us. Whatever we're going through right now is exactly where we're supposed to be. Because it's for our benefit where we're at right now, whatever we're going through. That Jesus is a complete Savior, not a partial Savior. We want to remember as we get through history, we talked about what happened in Diocletian's time. We want to remember those believers during the reign of Bloody Mary, during the 1500s, late 1500s, she reigned from 1553 to 1558. 288 people were burned at the stake because they opposed Catholicism, our Protestant brothers and sisters. We want to remember the words that ring in my ear, have been ringing in my ear for weeks and weeks and weeks now as <clears throat> you, Latimer, said to Dr. Nicholas Ridley as they were being taken to the stakes to be burned for their belief in Jesus as a complete Savior. That Latimer says to Ridley, be of good cheer. Now think about this. They're going to be tied to a stake. The wood is going to be piled up around them. They might have gunpowder fastened around their waist or around their neck. Though flames are going to be lit while they're alive and they're going to burn to death, more than likely it's done in front of their own church and certainly in front of their own families. And Latimer says to Ridley, he says, be of good cheer. Play the man. Nicholas Ridley had said earlier that day, the day before, they said about what was going to happen. I'm going to paraphrase his words the next day because they knew it was going. He said, the breakfast tomorrow is going to be rather sharp. But the dinner is going to be glorious. This is the attitude we need to take as believers as we read these words to, to play the man or play the woman as the case may be. To trust in a Savior that saves completely in a topsy-turvy world. A world where a president, <clears throat> in one hand, tells the states that are taking away the mask mandate that they're Neanderthals, but on the other hand, authorizes late-term abortions. I'm going to tell you which one is Neanderthalic, and it ain't the masks. We have a country where a pastor is put into prison for preaching the gospel, yet child molesters are left out. We have a nation where we say that you, <laughs> the danger of growing up and saying, oh, be whatever you want to be. Well, now it's like, you know, I can be a woman if I want to be a woman, or a man if I want to be a man. We can't change the chromosomes, but somehow we're supposed to follow science, yet ignore this other stuff, or vice versa. It makes no sense. The thing I can trust is this. This tells me what it is, what is true. There is a way that seems wise to man, but leads to death. Woe does evil is good and good is evil. We trust in God's providence. We trust in what God has told us. 
we trust him when he says in 1 Corinthians that we are to endure and will endure to the end. We trust in 2 Timothy that not only we be persecuted, but we will endure through Christ's work in us, through the Holy Spirit working in us. We know in Philippians 3 that it tells us that as true believers, we will fellowship in His sufferings. And I'll end on this with God's providence. Look at Joshua chapter 23, verse 14. Joshua 23, 14. The words of Joshua saying this, Now behold, today I am going the way of all the earth. You know in all your hearts and in all your souls that no, not one word of all the good words which the Lord your God spoke concerning you has failed. Not one word has failed. <coughs> all have been fulfilled for you. Not one of them has failed. I want you to trust in God's Word to know that His providence, what He says will happen, will happen. He is a complete Savior. Jesus completely saves. The persecution will come. The hatred will come. But we will endure as believers till the end to depart and be with our Savior through God's providence. Let's pray. <clears throat> Glorious and Heavenly Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for... Uh, for changing our hearts. Thank you for changing who we are. Thank you for bending us towards your will and towards your desires. Continue to be with us throughout this day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.